anyone who's been successful in some in part of life understands that when something goes wrong, often we as individuals need to respond and do a thing. Welcome to Your Retirement Planning Simplified with your host, Joseph Curry, a CFP professional who is going to help you learn how to simplify your retirement planning. This podcast is all about helping you answer those burning questions you've had about your retirement possibilities and making a plan to get there. Through retirement planning education, resources, and expert interviews, Joe will help you get clear on your retirement vision, how to simplify it, and what you'll need specifically to achieve or maintain your financial freedom. Ready to live out your retirement dreams and create future opportunities for the ones you love? Then let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to Your Retirement Planning Simplified with Joe Curry and Lindsay Wilson. Today, we're joined by Christian Newton, a Vice President for Dimensional Fund Advisors, where we speak about behavioral finance. Now, Christian, as Vice President, Dimensional Fund Advisors helps financial advisors leverage Dimensional's capital. He also markets research and its application to portfolios for investors. Now, he's been with Dimensional for 20 years, spending his first 10 years in the firm's marketing group, serving as art director, head of interactive, and vice president of marketing. And he experienced the first wave of internet growth working at the consulting conglomerate US Web CKS. He also holds a BA in history from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and his online writing has been profiled in the New York Times and Entertainment Weekly. A few of the topics that we cover during the podcast are scientific and evidence-based investing and the scientific perspective on investing, particularly as to how it translates to the investor. And we also go on to discuss why we often see a gap in, in investment returns and investor returns. And finally, Christian gives us a bit of advice on tuning out the noise and a balanced media diet as it relates to investing as well as a few other topics that we think will help you to become a more successful investor. And of course, anything that we reference throughout the show, we'll make sure to have in the show notes. And if you like what you hear or you feel that there's somebody who could benefit, we ask you to share, like, subscribe with friends and family. And of course, we are always interested in hearing from you about topics or issues or questions that you'd like us to address. And you can reach out to us. Again, the information to do so will be shared in the show notes. We hope you enjoy. Thank you. So we were just briefly discussing before the show, translating high-level investment ideas to the average investor. And Christian, your background in marketing. And I, my first question would be, as a vice president with Dimensional Fund Advisors, where does that background dovetail with what you do at Dimensional? Hey, Lindsay, thank you for that question. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for having me. I've worked at Dimensional for 20 years now. And even though I did not prepare in my academic career to work in finance, the reason I've been at this firm for 20 years is that what they do and what I am interested in are really well aligned, but maybe for unexpected reasons. I didn't study finance uh, you know, in university. I studied uh, the history of science. I was a history major. Uh, my original career plan was to become a litigator and become an attorney. I have not done that. I have not gone anywhere near law school. But after studying the history of science and then needing to kind of get my first job and out of college, Dimensional was my first job. And I had a, a kind of a background in the creative arts and marketing. And that was kind of my most saleable skill as a kind of 22-year-old. 
So I started at the firm just focusing purely on marketing, not necessarily having a lot of knowledge about finance or investments or, or any of that stuff. But what I loved about the firm and what I learned over my first couple of years at the firm was that this was a company that was really applying the traditions of scientific inquiry, and we may get into those in more detail, to investing and to what it means to you know, invest in companies and bonds and other securities. And again, without having formal finance training, that was a revelatory idea to me. I had never heard, I had always viewed investing as an art where you would essentially hire a really smart person who would make a guess about what's going to happen in the future. And they'd own a few companies and you'd, you'd change your investments. You'd avoid bad markets. You'd, you'd want to seek out good markets, all that kind of traditional view stuff. I had never considered that there was actually this academic inquiry into investing, into capital markets, into where returns come from, the returns that we as regular investors receive as we you know, make plans for our investments, if we make plans for retirement, that there's a scientific way to set up investments to put the, the chances of success in your favor. Doesn't guarantee a result, of course. That to me is an, that's an axiom of investing that you have to be harnessing some uncertainty. But the reason I stuck around so long is dimensional's application of this scientific inquiry. And we're talking a social science here. Economics is a social science you know, not like chemistry or physics, perhaps, but still a way of empirically asking some questions. And again, giving us evidence, giving us information that we can put to work to improve our lives. And so that mission, which is still pretty unusual in the world of investing, is just what activated my imagination. And, you know, in a growing firm, as you guys are well aware, there's plenty of work to do. And if you're willing to volunteer to do new things, there's a lot of opportunity for you. And that's been the case for me at Dimensional for 20 years has been, again, I've always been able to take that kind of outsider view of these ideas, not having had the formal training, certainly learning enough to be dangerous inside, a, inside of the firm, but being able to have that outsider perspective so that we can successfully translate these ideas for regular investors, because a lot of these ideas are really counterintuitive. They don't necessarily align with our normal experience as human beings. But to me, that is a fascinating challenge. I never get tired of trying to successfully tell that story again in a way that, that investors can appreciate. Absolutely. From that outsider perspective, if we could just jump back, somebody listening who may not be overly familiar with the scientific inquiry of investing, from your perspective, how do we translate that to people, to in the investor? Like what, what are some of your approaches or how do you think about that in general? I would say my starting position is the following. Investment opportunities have existed for thousands of years. Traditionally, people would have to invest, you know, their time or their energy or their sweat, you know, in running a business or, or working in a profession. And then, of course, as civilization has advanced, we've had opportunities to invest capital, to invest wealth in businesses that maybe we're not directly in, involved in. And even up to 100 years ago, you really couldn't get a picture of what it would mean to invest essentially in everything. That is, what kind of a return would I have experienced as an investor if I had simply owned the entire global stock market or the entire US stock market or the entire Canadian stock market? What kind of return of an investor would I have received if rather than choosing one company or one sector or one industry or picking a good time to be invested or a bad time to be invested, rather, what would it mean if I looked at the long term 
20, 30 years, and I could, could kind of measure what kind of return I could expect. Those, answer, those questions started to get answered uh, in the early 1960s because of the application simply of computing power to stock market returns. So for the first time in the history of the world, again, everyone knew what it meant to invest in one company or you know one, one product, one stock, one bond. You'd get a return that, of course, is a unique function of that company. But interesting things happen when you, what we call diversify, where you don't invest in just a few opportunities, but you invest in a whole big basket of them, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of stocks or bonds. And again, it's that revolution where we could measure, hey, here's an average return that we as investors can expect to get, not by speculating, not by guessing what will happen next, not by concentrating, not by saying, I'm gonna invest in these three companies or these two industries, and, and forego the rest, but rather essentially owning everything, having an investment plan that can be pointed to really specific goals based on this scientific evidence, essentially looking at what kind of return do we get over, again, now we have you know, data sets that span 60, 70, 80 years. And as everyone hopefully listening to this can appreciate, those investment returns include a lot of really great periods for our economies, they also include really terrible periods for our economies. They include periods of peace and prosperity. They also include periods, unfortunately, of you know, genuine conflict and you know, literally world wars. So what we can do is we can start to kind of get our, our, our arms around what it means to invest regardless of what happens tomorrow. And to me, that's the real revolution that kind of evidence-based investing has created for regular investors is there's a way to invest such that you can have a good sense that you're going to achieve your goals and you can have some peace of mind. You don't have to be asking yourself what's going to happen tomorrow. What emergency measures will I have to take with my investments tomorrow based on what happens, good or bad? And so to me, it's it's simply that act of measuring the returns, not just of stocks, but of bonds and other securities. And that comes out of the academic community that, that really came out of primarily out of the Center for Research and Security Prices at the University of Chicago, where again, for the first time, today it's really commonplace. Everyone listening to my voice has a really powerful computer in their pocket or purse or desk, right? Everyone has a phone. But you know, in 1957, there were just a few electronic computers that could process these data. And that is what created this academic revolution where academics could examine these ideas. And again, as part of any scientific inquiry, you know, for my definition anyway, it's not science until it's published. And when this research is published, great things happen because other academics can scrutinize that work. Other academics can perhaps criticize that work. And because it's essentially in the public domain, companies like Dimensional and financial advisors in turn can pick up these ideas and apply them to the real world problems and challenges of regular investors. And that's still a really young field. We're really talking about something that's really only been around about 60 years. And that's why not everyone invests this way. But that to me is, hopefully that's a compact answer for you. I tend to run on a little bit, but simply measuring the market, giving us a sense for statistically what a markets tend to deliver such that we can build investment plans, build investment portfolios that we expect will deliver reliable returns. Never with a guarantee, of course, but can put the odds of success in our favor. That's perfect. And maybe if we just kind of dive a little deeper on a maybe a related subject, and I'm going to come back to maybe the active and uh, evidence-based investing in a minute, but sure, we also know there's a behavioral aspect to investing. And so whether it's 
you know, an investor in a mutual fund who underperforms the returns of the mutual fund, whether actively managed or whether it's a, you know, an ETF just tracking a market. Uh, we know that a lot of investors underperform the investments that they're actually in. Like Carl Richards calls that the behavior gap. Right. But, uh, so maybe you could just give uh, maybe a couple thoughts on, you know, why do you think that there, we see that, you know, that gap there? Totally. It's a really important line of questioning. So I would say, let's start with, again, what markets tend to deliver. And if we have a mutual fund or an ETF that simply holds the entire market, however we want to define it, we kind of have a good sense. We, we can measure, looking backward, exactly what that return is. And based on those data, we can have a reasonably good sense for what we can expect in the future. Never precisely, but a reasonably good idea. Why is it so many investors fail to get, let's call it that average return? Most of the people listening to my voice right now don't get up in the morning hoping to be average. Most of us in my experience, whether it's working in your profession or running a business or being a parent or simply playing hockey or golf, we all wish to be above average. And most of us, if we're successful, we're really great at something. We're way above average at something. But in investing, this is counterintuitive. To me, average is difficult to achieve for a lot of investors. Carl Richards calls that the behavior, you know, kind of that, that gap. My thesis is that it is difficult to maintain the discipline to hold these investments. Again, I own everything. I know I'm owning some good companies. I also know I own some companies that are maybe not so good. I know pretty much ahead of time that some of these companies will deliver great returns to me in the future, and some of them will deliver disappointing returns to me in the future. My thesis is it is human nature, especially when what are we doing as investors? We are accepting uncertainty. We're holding a series, a, a, a set of investments, bonds or stocks uh, that are going to change in value based on what happens next. That could be based on uh, what happens in a war in Europe. It could be based on what happens to the timber market in Canada. It could be based on what happens to the price of oil. We know there are all these variables that we are confronted by as investors, and all of them change and all of them are uncertain. What can we expect next? It's human nature, I think, to when we see a bad return or we see bad news in the media, on TV to say, I don't like to experience pain. I don't think that's a minority opinion. Most of us wish to avoid pain. Uh, and so because of that, I'm going to pull back my investments. I'm going to step away from these bad markets. I'm going to wait until markets are kind of placid again, until positive returns have showed up, then I'll buy back in. That wish to avoid pain and seek out pleasure feels really good in our gut and emotionally makes us feel better. And that's not worthless. I want to put a big asterisk by that. I think it's reasonable that we should have kind of emotional surety, again, being able to kind of sleep at night. That's important for investments, in my opinion. But that wish to avoid the pain and only seek out the pleasure, that means that the average investor, they don't hold those securities perfectly over time. Rather, what they do is they get in, they get out. And when they do that, in order to what they think is to avoid bad returns and seek out good returns, what they end up doing counterintuitively often is avoiding the good returns and only harnessing the bad. So it, it, we can examine that in a little more detail if we want. But to me, that is why for mortal, emotional human beings like all of us, it's difficult to withstand uh, all that uncertainty and simply hold the market. It can be done. A lot of people who have good objective advice 
people who have a good plan, people who are diversified, people who are trying to achieve their goals can be done. But for many, many investors, they fail to do it because what they end up doing essentially is selling low and buying high, which is the opposite of how one achieves outsized returns. Even one little modicum above average, as soon as you sell low and buy high, you're never going to even get to average. And again, that, that really runs counter to most of our personal experiences. And I think that's a key element of why these ideas of investing can be a challenge for investors to pick up and do themselves. And that's why we at Dimensional want to work with advisors like you, because to us, that objective advice and perspective that someone else can bring to our wealth is really invaluable. It, it's it's really important for expecting those long-term positive results for achieving goals. And see kind of where we are at the markets this past year, and with the pandemic not too far behind us, I think the challenge for some clients is they want, they think we should work harder. We should, we should do more when, when things are down, right? I had a, had a, a prospective client come in here in the last couple of weeks and they were looking for a new advisor because they said their advisor told them that they shouldn't do anything while, while markets were down. And they wanted someone who was going to work for them when markets were down. So, you know, thankfully, I feel like we've done a you know a pretty good job, and our clients have done a, a great job through down markets and and sticking with the plan and understanding that the plan's in place so that we, you know we've taken into account these scenarios. But what would you say directly, maybe to the investor who says, you know, I'm I'm not okay with my my money's down. You should be we should be doing something. We, there must be something that we can do to to get ahead of this. Uh, yeah, a couple of thoughts there. Let, let me provide a kind of a 50,000 foot answer and then maybe a, a more really concrete answer. At the 50,000 foot level, my perspective there is that I understand why people, again, in an emergency, in a crisis, when we have in the short, even medium term, negative returns or disappointing returns, why some people say we got to do something. And here's why I think that's human nature. In most of our lives, whether it's you know being parents or in a family or in our profession, or especially if we own and operate a business, when there's bad news, we need to do something. And I, I spent a lot of time with so many people who operated businesses all over North America during those first few months of COVID, where you know if they owned a restaurant, if they ran a light manufacturing company, they needed to do a ton of work in an emergency in order for their business to work correctly. There were new regulations they had to deal with. They had labor difficulties. They had supply chain difficulties. All of those required emergency response. And I think even if we don't own our own business, anyone who's been successful in some in part of life understands that when something goes wrong, often we as individuals need to respond and do a thing. Capital markets are weird in that they are so fast. They are so responsive to what happens. They're open six days a week, somewhere around the world, someone is able to buy or sell a security. They move so rapidly. It's very difficult for us as individuals when we identify a unit of bad news to respond in such a way where we can be ahead of everyone else. That's how quickly markets work. So I always want to say with respect, however we created our wealth, and you know, kind of to put it in technical economic terms, we kind of call that our human capital, that those ideas don't necessarily translate to investments because we're dealing with super liquid investments around the world. Liquid meaning they are traded constantly and at great volume. What that means is the prices of those securities tend to be trading constantly and with great variation. That means our perspective at Dimensional is those competitive markets are constantly pricing in, never perfectly, 
but constantly pricing in the uncertainty that we're being presented with as investors. And if we as an individual investor say, I want to get out, whether it's bad news we're avoiding or even good news we want to seek, I want to get a concentrated investment in a company, it's usually too late because markets have already priced in that good or bad news for us. That's a 50,000 foot view answer to that question of what action can we take? A more concrete answer that people may appreciate a little bit more is that when we are investing, and especially if we're investing using the approach that we collectively take, which is put the evidence to work, be diversified, don't just hold a, a single set, a single index of securities, but rather look to the market every day to tell us what we should own and in what way. There is activity happening. When markets drop in price, there is activity that happens in a portfolio such that we can set ourselves up to experience the returns that we expected at the beginning. There are there are a lot of things, as you both know, that advisors can and do do can and do do in portfolios, such that those portfolios rebalance. They stay focused on the long-term goal. Every time prices change in an investments in an in a set of investments, our portfolio gets a little out of whack. When prices change violently during periods of volatility, and again, clients don't usually complain when the volatility is up, but they usually, of course, get concerned when the volatility is down. But in either direction, those portfolios need to be level set over time such that they stay directed at the long-term goals that people have articulated. That, to me, is the essence of having a good investment plan. You let the plan determine what you buy and sell, not your emotions. So when we say stay in your seat, don't react, let the bad news kind of wash over you because markets have probably already priced most of that in. Again, never perfectly, but better than some alternative. I'm not suggesting that nothing is happening in your portfolio, far from it. There's a lot that the portfolio manager is doing that an asset manager like Dimensional or others would be doing. There's a lot that the advisor can be doing, but the client doesn't have to get up out of their seat. They truly can, you know, as Warren Buffett has kind of famously said, you can skip the news section. You can go right to the sports pages if you want to, right? Like that's what you've earned by hiring an advisor and hiring savvy investment advisors that are going to be dynamically changing these investments when good and bad news happen. There is activity happening in your portfolio, but you, the investor, don't need to direct it based on gut instinct. You can successfully delegate that. I think to your point, it's interesting. I think people will avoid a loss or avoiding a loss is more important than the possibility of achieving a gain. And and if I'm the average investor who's on the fence between active and evidence-based investing, what do you what would you say to that investor who's who's got some anxiety about about sitting still or sitting in their chair and letting it wash over them? Well, you know, not not everyone invests with this approach. And, and I always want to be careful to say that those who don't invest with this approach are not necessarily committing you know, malpractice. Some people may have good reasons why they want to take a really active hand in their investments. Some people may have opinions or insights, as long as it's not insider trading, as long as it's not illegal, where the market would be happy to, uh, you know, to accept that perspective. And it, you know, if people can guess and be right, as we know, the reward for that is really significant. And that, that kind of lure of really outsized success is attractive to some people. Now, I know a lot of end clients who they have some play money. And for some investments, they do make active decisions. But for the money that's going to pay for 
uh, their retirement, for their long-term care, for the long-term care of their spouse, for the education of their children and grandchildren, they're not going to speculate around that. There, they're going to use a very different approach, the approach we're taking, where you put the statistics to work for you, you set up an investment plan that's going to work when it's kind of sunny out and work when there, uh, you know, when there are storm clouds, uh, you know, on the horizon. Either way, you know that you are set up to maximize your possible, your best possible outcome with reasonable expectations. So, you know, some people speculate for good reasons. I would say that if someone is on the fence and they want to know, to me, the most kind of practical upside I can present for taking this so-called passive approach. Again, your investments may be dynamic, but you as an investor don't change those allocations based on what you read in the paper. You keep them set for a long period of time. I would The best argument I can make is the following. When great returns show up, not only across markets, but also in specific companies, they tend to show up in clumps. They tend to, they do not show up evenly every market day. They tend to show up violently. And I'm talking about in the positive direction, not negative returns. Positive returns often show up in short spikes and without warning. You cannot get a, you know, a, a postcard in the, in, the, in the mail the day before such that you can be in the right place at the right time. And if you look at the long-term data, especially if you look at, you know, for, for, uh, for diversified markets, so often those big positive returns they occur in the shadow of the worst news that we experience. They occur just as kind of those so-called green shoots are sprouting up from the global market crisis of 2008 and 2009. I'm sure everyone hearing me right now remembers, whether they like it or not, the year 2020, more or less a terrible year, at least from the point of view of kind of personal liberty and you know, being able to live our lives the way we expected, all of us on the planet essentially dealing with a global pandemic. But I'm sure clients can remember markets dropped quickly, but they also recovered very quickly. And those recovery markets did not happen after the vaccine was present. They did not happen after, you know, virality rates had dropped to kind of the levels they were in 2021. And this year, no, they happened just weeks and a couple of months after the market hit its low. And so again, if, if we want to harness all those positive returns, I argue the best way to do it is to stay invested, completely invested, not speculating on markets, but rather buying the investments that are going to achieve my goal and sticking to it. That way I know I get every positive return. Otherwise, it can be really difficult to make sure you're always invested at the right time because those positive returns, they don't show up when everything looks sunny, they usually show up way before, you know, kind of the, the lifeguard tells us it's safe to get back in the water. Yeah, that's perfect. And you mentioned in there, those returns often come when we're still getting bad news, or they don't definitely don't necessarily come when we're just getting good news. So I also know that, you know, Dimensional talks a lot about ignore the noise. You see that in pamphlets and things like that. And, and we talk about ignore the noise here with clients. So what would you say to the average investor who's, you know, watching the news every day and hearing things on, you know, the radio about good or bad, you know, how would you uh, put that in perspective for investors? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for us to be informed citizens. And it's also, you know, with a lot of respect, I never tell someone not to consume a particular kind of news. If someone wants to watch finance TV all day, you know, if they're retired and, you know, they, they get, you know, uh, some entertainment out of it, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But what I do ask them to do is to kind of put a gap between the news you're exposed to, good or bad. And again, I would argue that it is the tendency of journalism 
I would say it's also the tendency of the human mind to put a priority to bad news, to put a gap between that news diet and what you're doing with your wealth. Again, I think it is reasonable to make the argument that once you see it on TV and once you see it in the Globe and Mail, it has already been reflected by prices. Believe me, there are people out there constantly in the derivatives market, constantly in these markets, trying to get the tiniest edge into, into trading on good or bad news and speculation. And again, I just want to kind of remind people that, you know, that again, bad news, especially bad news for investments and capitalism in general, that tends to get coverage. And especially, you know, when a single company goes under or a single company has an accounting scandal or a single company has a product that fails, all of these examples, that's what the news tends to cover. But the news doesn't tend to cover when, you know, 499 other companies are chugging along, adding value, manufacturing widgets, adding value, creating valuable services, innovating. And we as capital investors, you know, uh, we're, we deserve access to those positive results if we are already invested. If we show up kind of late to the party, if there's a positive story on the glossy cover of a magazine, I would argue the investors who are really going to benefit from all that good news, they were already in there to begin with. So I just encourage people to put a nice, healthy gap between your media diet. I don't want people to cancel their cable or, or cancel their newspaper, but put a gap between that digest and then what you do. And I'll say the same thing for politics. You didn't ask me to say it, but I'll say it. I'll say the same thing for politics. If people have a political opinion, what I encourage them to do is write a check. If you want to engage in you know, political speech, political activity, you want to support a candidate, you can do that in the US, you can do that in Canada. But I discourage people from, based on your own political perspective, making huge changes to your asset allocation just because your guy or gal isn't in power or your political view maybe you know, isn't, isn't currently you know, running your country. I always try to make this argument that the economy is way bigger than the government. I know sometimes it's hard to view it that way because we think and talk and argue a lot about government and politics, and that's all healthy. And again, if someone wants to put their money to work in politics, I think the way to do it is to directly apply it to political advocacy rather than to speculate around, I want to get out of markets because I think, you know, this premier or this president is going to ruin things for the next, you know, next period of time. To me, economies are too big for that kind of control to really happen. I think that's... That's about time for, for us, but thank you so much for joining us. It's been- Man, I feel like I talked too much. I'm sorry. No, it's perfect. <laughs> I mean, we could probably have this conversation all day, but I appreciate you making the time, Christian. And uh, Absolutely. Thank you. And I'm sure yeah. our listeners will get a lot out of this. I think it's going to so. help them make better decisions about their investing. Indeed. Thanks, Christian. Thank you. Investment services are provided through Matthews & Associates Investments of Aligned Capital Partners Incorporated and approved trade name of Aligned Capital Partners Inc. ACPI. Only investment-related products and services are offered through ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI and covered by the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Tax planning, financial planning, and insurance services are provided through Matthews & Associates. Matthews & Associates is an independent company separate and distinct from ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI. Matthews & Associates are not licensed tax professionals, and you should consult with your tax advisor before acting on any recommendations. Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. If you'd like to see how prepared you are for retirement, we've created a free retirement readiness calculator to help you out. Go to matthewsandassociates.ca 
forward slash ready to input your retirement information and receive instant feedback to help you evaluate your current retirement readiness. Be sure to tune back in for the next episode. And until then, we're here to help you simplify and succeed in your retirement planning.